You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. How's it going, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. Uh, we have some big news to talk about, as always, on the week's podcast. And, of mm-hmm. course, this week's big development is the outcome of the Indian general elections. There's been several weeks of voting going on since April, and on Thursday, May 23rd, the votes were finally tallied, and let's not really beat around the bush. It was a massive blowout for the Narendra Modi-led Bharatiya Janata Party and the National Democratic Alliance coalition. Uh, so there's no doubt Narendra Modi will be India's prime minister for another five-year term. And the mandate is really a whopper. Um, I think I think the big lesson to maybe take away from the lead-up to this election was that maybe... A lot of analysts had really pretended that the election was a lot more competitive than it turned out to be. Um, There were, of course, concerns about the government's economic record over the implementation of things like the goods and services taxes um, tax and the disastrous um, 2016 decision to remove 86 percent of India's cash supply from circulation under the demonetization decision. But at the end of the day, the BJP really seems to have paid very little of a political price at the polls for that. And uh, you know, there have been kind of late moving factors, including the crisis with Pakistan earlier this year, which appears to have paid off at the polls, especially in North India, where the BJP performed incredibly well in uh, certain states. In fact, uh, you know, if you look at a state like Uttar Pradesh, um, the BJP actually won more seats there than the main opposition party, the Congress, did in the entirety of India. The Congress only pulled, pulled in 52 seats. And the BJP ended up with a total of 302. There's still one seat pending, but it looks like it'll probably be 303. It's a really, it's really an incredible result for the party. Uh, puts them in a d- dominant position domestically. Um, but you know, we are a geopolitics podcast, so I think uh, you know one of the things we should take stock of Prashant is the effect uh, geopolitically on the rest of Asia, on the mm-hmm. Indo-Pacific, of another five-year term for Narendra Modi. We've talked before about how this Indian administration has been particularly dynamic on foreign policy, and the prime minister, at least, has been personally interested in statecraft to some extent. Uh, So why don't we basically jump around and talk a bit about the variety of um, effects I think this election is going to have uh, on India's relationships across the region. Um, but, you know, I think the place to maybe begin is the neighborhood, since I think that was always the Modi government's first priority. It's been the priority for many Indian governments going back a long time. In 2014, Modi invited the leaders of Sark countries to his inauguration. And right now, the neighborhood is in a very different place than it was in 2014. There's a lot more concern about um, a range of issues, not least of which being um, growing the growing influence that Beijing has in a lot of these capitals, the growth of um, terrorism and extremism along India's borders. India's had issues with uh, immigration from certain countries as well. Um, so looking at the neighborhood, how do you think uh, we should think about the outcome of this election for for the South Asian neighborhood in the next few years? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a good place to start. And I think it it's kind of a mixed bag, right? So we've discussed various uh, aspects of it over the podcast previously. So, you know, if you look at the general state of the neighborhood, it tends to wax and wane depending on electoral outcomes in specific countries. And in that regard, you know, you can you can talk about the fact that, for example, in Nepal, some of the domestic alignments and shifts that we've seen have been a little bit worrying for India. And, you know, we've seen 
some reactions on the Indian side, like the blockade that was imposed that had some limits in terms of effectiveness. But on the other hand, we've seen some other election outcomes in Bangladesh and the Maldives that have turned the tide uh, in different directions as well for India. And I think the big one that we've talked about uh, most recently on the podcast is India-Pakistan relations, where, uh, you know, that probably had the most immediate effect in terms of what we're seeing folks talk about the election results in terms of uh, Modi's reaction and retaliation for what Pakistan had done in the immediate uh, period preceding the elections. That's seen as, you know, sort of somehow uh, drumming up further support for him as a strong uh, nationalist leader. So it, it really is a mixed bag. Why that's important is because, um, as you said, India's control of the neighborhood is only one variable amidst a series of things that we've seen. One aspect of that is what the Chinese have been doing in terms of their own uh, policy in the South Asian region. Another element of that is how these South Asian countries themselves are managing their own domestic politics and some of their own security developments. So you know, that's, I think, the big picture for how the neighborhood looks, kind of a mixed bag for India. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think mixed bag is the right way to put it. I think one of the big um, lessons to take away for India probably from the last five years is that um, you have to sometimes let domestic politics in these countries play out, um, right? I think if you look at mm -hmm. Sri Lanka and the Maldives and the trajectory of those two countries, uh, that's really been the result. I mean, in Maldives, there was actually a pretty serious discussion in New Delhi at um, at a point uh, in uh, in 2017 and 2018 about potentially considering intervention as Yamin was taking the country in a increasingly authoritarian direction and leaning towards China. Uh, especially after the uh, the final state of emergency decision in 2018. But then, of course, we had the shock election result, and now you have an incredibly pro-India leader there. He was actually um, Mohammad Nasheed, um, uh, sorry, not Mohammad Nasheed, uh, Ibu Soli, the new um, president there, uh, was the first uh, leader to congratulate um, Modi after his election victory. So relationship there does remain quite close. Um, moving away from India's neighborhood a bit, I think... Um, the other big relationship that I think is going to undergo some interesting times sooner rather than later is going to be the Indian, uh, the Indian relationship with the United States. And um, President Donald Trump uh, congratulated Modi on Twitter, and he said that there would be big things in store for the U.S.-India relationship under, uh, under Modi. And um, I think, you know, the, the direction, the trajectory of the U.S.-India relationship has, I think, been colored by continuity over the last two decades more broadly. And that continuity has largely persisted from the Obama years to the Trump years. Remarkably, I think India is one of the countries that's actually had a easier time with the transition from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. Of course, that's not to say there haven't been issues. Uh, I think there are a serious set of issues that are going to only grow more serious in the coming months. In fact, I think one of the more challenging relationships for India in probably the first year of the second term of the Modi government might be the relationship with the United States. Um, and you know, some of the issues to think about include the trade issue, not only the effects of the broader U.S.-China trade war on India and on global markets and on the availability of um, capital for foreign investors uh, to put in places like India, but but also the trade war has directly come to uh, hit India in many ways, right? The, the withdrawal of GSP status for India, a preferential trade arrangement, um, continues to sting in New Delhi. It hasn't been elevated to the point where it's page one news on the U.S.-India agenda, but I think um, New Delhi is going to take this up more seriously and has been taking it up with uh, the United States. And if there can be a reversal, that would obviously be really good news for India, but 
um, the United States seems to be really sticking to its guns here because India is not the only country that's been hit by the GSP decision. It's been Turkey. This is kind of a broader part of the recalibration of how the United States trades with its partners um, and allies across the world. So trade's one issue. The other one is, I think, um, uncertainty in oil markets, potentially rising oil prices, especially if the United States keeps up its confrontations, twin confrontations with Venezuela and Iran. The Iran issue, I think, has also come to hit New Delhi directly after uh, the expiration of the oil waivers, and I think that's only going to grow. The third issue, uh, this is probably going to come to head in 2020, is India taking a delivery of the Russian S-400 surface-to-air missile system um, that would likely trigger American sanctions under the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act. And India has been confident, I think, um, at least many Indian analysts have been confident that New Delhi will be able to secure a waiver from Washington for that purchase, given the broader geopolitical importance of the U.S.-India relationship to the broader U.S.-Indo-Pacific strategy. I'm not sure that's such a good bet. Um, in fact, uh, I think the road to a waiver might end up exacting a high price. Um, and finally, just one other issue I would say is the broader trajectory of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think there's real concern in India that the withdrawal might happen too abruptly and too quickly without paying heed to India's interests, which is a stable um, government in Kabul, the current government, not certainly a return to the Taliban taking over Afghanistan. And the U.S. seems to be less concerned with that, more concerned with preventing the resurgence of al-Qaeda or international jihadist groups in Afghanistan more generally. So there is a divergence there. Um, so those are just four issues that I see as challenging for the U.S.-India relationship in the coming years. That's not to say that there isn't still a strong cooperative basis for the two countries to continue their collaboration. Uh, of course, we have a very strong defense relationship that continues to grow under the major defense partner status. Um, but Prashant, um, I was wondering if you wanted to uh, add anything to that assessment of uh, where U.S.-India relations are likely to go. No, I'd agree with, with those specific issues. I, I would just add two more things. One, one is um, you're seeing you know India now have to navigate a, a more contested environment where you have the combination of uncertainty about the U.S. role uh, with Trump, as as you mentioned, but then also you know growing Chinese assertiveness and and just greater influence in general in India's immediate neighborhood as well as globally more generally, and then now intensifying U.S.-China competition as well. So that sort of major power competition dynamic, you know, really creates more anxieties and uncertainties about India, and and how it manages these two powers independently, and then also the U.S.-China comp competitive dynamic more generally. And then the, the other aspect of this, of course, is the fact that, you know, now Modi has re-election. 2020, we're going to shift to whether Trump gets re-elected or whether, you know, we'll have to see whether a, a new administration will have to recalibrate the U.S.-India relationship more generally as well. So that's going to be kind of the, the, the shifting dynamic within the next year or two. And I think the broad issue and question for U.S.-India relations is, I mean, you're right, right? The general trajectory, we, we've talked about this on the podcast before, is U.S.-India relations uh, being a, a, a sort of relationship where there has Strategic been convergence in the U.S.-India relationship is going to be balanced uh, with respect to how both sides calibrate their domestic politics and then also how they manage broader issues that go beyond U.S. and India. And you're right, in the U.S. Uh, side, the big question there is going to be Middle East policy um, and how the United States actually manages these other sort of rogue regimes that can have effects on how it then treats India. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, okay. Um, moving on, uh, I did want to also 
talk briefly about the India-China relationship. Um, I think, uh, broadly speaking, I see the relationship with China in a second Modi term um, becoming more overtly confrontational. I think um, we've seen signs of that happening very slowly. Um, I think confrontation is maybe the worst case scenario between the two countries. The best case for the India-China relationship, I think, is probably going to be heading towards a more transactional nature in general. Um, I think we've seen a great degree of transactionalism between New Delhi and Beijing. I think a good example was the spring with the tussle over the designation of Jaish-e Mohammed chief Masood Azhar at the United Nations. And I think we're going to continue to see that kind of a dynamic. There are obviously broad issues ranging from the border dispute between the two countries, which is no closer to seeing resolution, to more acute geopolitical issues, uh, including the growing presence of the Chinese Navy in the Indian Ocean, China's growing um, infrastructure um, pursuits around um, around India's neighborhood under the aegis of the Belt and Road Initiative, which New Delhi continues to protest despite its participation in institutions like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Uh, but broadly speaking, I see that relationship to be in in a challenging place. Uh, I think, um, you know, we, what we've just seen recently with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit uh, isn't, isn't particularly encouraging to me. I think China remains obviously clearly willing to maintain its leverage with Pakistan, which is yet another issue that I think New Delhi has to contend with in the future. The China-Pakistan economic corridor is not going anywhere. I think China sees a major role for itself in Pakistan and the two countries together, uh, I think, see value mutually in their relationship as as creating problems for India's uh, room for maneuver in the in the region. Um, so, you know, in, in China, I think we're also set to see quite a degree of continuity, right? Uh, you brought up the point that the U.S. is going to undergo an election in 2020. Um, but in China, obviously, we have, you know, Xi Jinping, effective leader for life. And um, that, I think, will create new and interesting challenges for the two countries. Um, what, you know, just um, before we um, run out of time on this podcast, I do want to also ask you uh, to maybe reflect a bit on the reaction across the Southeast Asian region. Um, I know that that's going to be um, an interesting part of India's broader ACTI strategy, uh, which has really put Southeast Asia at the center. Uh, we've just had a re-election in, uh, in Indonesia of uh, Jokowi, a major partner for India, but also across the region. I'm wondering what your uh, perspective is on how Southeast Asia views the uh, re-election of Modi. I think we, we've seen broadly you know, increased activism uh, by India in Southeast Asia, not just on the economic side, but also on the security side, really across some of these key relationships. And I expect a lot of that to continue. And I think in general, within Southeast Asia, the fact that we have a stable Indian government and we don't have to go back to sort of the hectic coalition politics of before probably will be welcomed in general, just the fact that you have a engaged uh, Indo-Pacific power that's actually going to be a constant in the region where there's so much change. So that part, I think, is welcome. I, I still think, though, that you know, India's capacity constraints, um, whether you're talking economically or militarily, is really where a lot of the gaps lie between what India tries to do and, and what it can actually achieve. So I think, hopefully, the upside is that with Modi in office for another few years, maybe he has an opportunity to sort of build on the resource base of India and really strengthen it in that regard. And I think that would be welcome in the region. I think the other thing that's really interesting is we've talked about, you know, major powers in the United States and China and India's immediate neighborhood. But it's also, I mean, Modi's engagement with other powers in Asia and other middle powers, you know, whether it's Japan, Australia, 
um, some of the diplomacy that he's been doing with um, some of the Gulf states in the Middle East and, and Israel, those things are, are interesting. And I, I wonder, you know, how that's he's going to navigate that in the future, not just, you know, beyond the issue of, of the quadrilateral engagement or the quad, just how India is going to engage as its as its, as its own uh, sort of reputation as a major power, how it seeks to build out these relationships. I think broadly what we've seen is in this context of U.S.-China uncertainty, a lot of these middle powers uh, and regional powers are looking to consolidate their relationships with each other and just hedge a lot more. Yeah. And I wonder what we're going to see on that front, too. Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, not to not to place Japan as a middle power necessarily, but I think uh, in Tokyo, this will certainly be a welcome election result. I think Shinzo Abe really sees Narendra Modi as a kindred spirit in many ways, both um, both uh, internationalist leaning nationalist leaders with a concern about China's rise. And, and the two of them have really pushed the India-Japan bilateral relationship forward considerably during during their tenures. And Abe is going to stick around um, probably through 2021, possibly even longer, depending on his um, you know uncanny knack for political survival in Japan. Um, you know, one of the things that does come to mind uh, watching the BJP kind of sweep across India and really uh, observing just how big of a tent the party has become overall, right? The BJP is a big party. You have everybody from sort of right-leaning free market technocrats to the hardcore Hindutva, Hindu nationalists uh, in the party. And uh, one of the things that I've been seeing a lot of kind of Indian domestic political analysts commenting on is that this second term of the Modi BJP is likely to see more of that Hindutva chauvinism express itself. And I'm wondering the ma- you know the ways in which that might manifest in Indian foreign policy. Uh, one of the ways I can see that manifesting is in things like the U.S.-India relationship, uh, things like the GSP decision, things like um, broader you know, convergence with the United States. Um, there has always been a, a strain in the India on the right and the left that sees um, you know bandwagoning with great powers, be it Russia um, mm-hmm. or the United States with a degree of discomfort. And I wonder if those voices will begin to play a greater role in uh, in national foreign policy decision making. And you know, before I get too carried away, I should say that given how we've seen the Modi prime minister's office work, the PMO, um, you know, foreign policy decision-making has been highly centralized in India under Modi. So I think we could expect that to stay the same, but it'll be interesting to see if, um, you know, the legislative debates that do happen in India about major foreign policy decisions uh, outside of issues like arms sales, which have been a major source of scandal in India, especially with the Rafal deal, if um, if the timbre of those discussions might change now under, under this uh, second term for the NDA. Um, but that's just something I think uh, you know we should keep in mind. I'm not I'm not sure how we'll play out either way. But um, if if that does become a more important variable in India's foreign policy, I think uh, you know we could see that manifest in unpredictable ways. Of course, I think one of the most serious ways in which that could manifest is that we see five years of you know repeated cycles of crises with Pakistan. Because um, mm-hmm. you know, like I said on the podcast we did earlier this um, earlier this year after the India Pakistan crisis. Um, yeah, India struck back at Pakistan after after a major terrorist attack, but I really don't think that's going to deter future terrorist attacks against India. So when the next attack comes, Modi's really set a bench, you know, benchmark for himself and for his political base, um, and they'll expect to see action if and when um, Pakistan-based terror groups do strike India again. I think uh, the BJP has a real credibility problem, and this has actually been something that they put into their foreign policy manifesto this year before the election. So the importance and the interaction of, I think, um, growing nationalism in India with uh, with Indian foreign policy is something I think we should keep in mind. 
Absolutely. And I think the the other aspect of that that will be interesting to see is now that we've seen, as you noted, uh, the fact that, you know, Congress has performed really badly in this election, whether we'll see uh, forces other than uh, the BJP try to use foreign policy as a way to drum up their own support, right? So if the lesson in this election is the fact that, you know, economic issues are important, but national security and foreign policy can be important in decisive ways as well, you know, will we see some maneuvering on key issues as well that makes Indian foreign policy more contested domestically? And I think that's that's an interesting question going forward too. Yeah. Um, well, Prashant, thanks a lot for joining me. Good to be with you. Great. Uh, for our listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, uh, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you've, been a, if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review on either iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show. And uh, if you have any suggestions for future episodes, please do reach out. I've gotten a few messages since the last podcast, and we do take those seriously. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.